Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. We have been exploring some amazing and challenging statements from Jesus, which are known to us today as Beatitudes. These are statements about what a blessed life looks like in practice, according to Jesus. In this episode, we're going to look at the last one of these, and it's a little bit longer than the previous ones. So let me read to you from Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Jews in Jesus' audience knew all about persecution. The invading forces of the last few centuries had brought horrific things to them, dominating them as a people and mocking their God. In 167 BC, the ruthless general Antiochus Epiphanes besieged the nation of Israel, and he offered a pig to his own god Jupiter in the Jerusalem temple. This is just one example out of many, many oppressive ones in Israel's history. But the persecution that Jesus was speaking of here is clearly stated. It wasn't about invading forces or Israel's political or social causes. Instead, it is identified with one's pursuit of the kingdom of God. And in a specific and challenging twist for his very Jewish audience, Jesus tells them that they will be blessed by their personal identification with and allegiance to this new king named Christ. Jesus is unambiguously making himself a reason for persecution here, and therefore he is calling very early in his ministry for followers who would lay their very life down for him and his kingdom rule. And in these verses we just read, we see a double whammy in its delivery. First, Jesus starts with the phrase, blessed are they, in order to convey the idea to a whole group of people, both on the mountain that day and well beyond. Then Jesus gets eye to eye with the second statement, blessed are you when you go through those things. This was a personal statement to those who would hear and read his words, and it will be part and parcel with the character traits of a Christian. The Beatitudes were intended to be embraced in their entirety. Therefore, being a persecuted Christian would be considered every bit as normal as being meek, merciful, or righteous. Jesus showed us through his ministry that peacemaking would not end all hostility. And as we engage with the world and with scripture, we can see that hostility both spiritually and physically still has not ended. Scripture is clear that we should always be living in a way that aims to make peace, but peace will not always want to be made. The one who will follow Jesus and the way of the kingdom and embrace all the Beatitudes as their own will live out a life of real integrity. This will certainly render us blessed before God. The downside is that it also serves to increase the hostility of the ungodly world around us. Scripture points to the world hating a righteous lifestyle seen in others because it exposes the way they fall short. 
In fact, it has been said that persecution is the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Now again, we need to remember that the audience Jesus was addressing here were Jews. And Jesus knew that even some of them would be part of the offending party in time to come. After all, they did have a bit of a history in doing just that. In Luke 11, Jesus makes a point about the way the Jews had acted in the past. It says this, verses 47 to 51. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. If you get a chance in your own time to look at Hebrews chapter 11, you will get a further idea of how God's chosen people, alongside the pagans, had treated some of God's chosen servants. It isn't pretty. It was always prophetically known that the righteous standard Jesus brought would be rejected and he would be persecuted. Psalm 118 verse 22 offers a verse that Jesus himself quoted, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus was fully aware of what his disciples would be following him into. In John 15 verses 19 to 21, we read these words of Christ. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. Servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. John later reiterates this idea when he writes in his first pastoral letter. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. When we study church history, we see a long line of persecuted saints along the way. Once it became clear that Christianity and Judaism were separate entities, this had certainly happened before 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem, the Roman Empire began to look at Christianity with greater scrutiny. The pressure to burn incense and give honor to Caesar as a god suddenly increased, and Christians were labeled atheists of the Roman Empire for refusing to do so. They were in other ways misunderstood by the Roman Empire and the pagan world because they didn't have a statue of their god like the rest of the religious world. In some cases, they were accused of cannibalism because of society's misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper, the communion table. In the ancient world, there were smear campaigns, there were trade sanctions, there was physical force and torture and death all going on as believers continued to pursue the kingdom way. Today, this continues in places all around the world. The church in China is probably the biggest in the world right now, but they have paid with their lives many times along the way. This is true in many other Asian and Middle Eastern locations as well. Some pockets of the church around the world right now are doing it really tough. Martin Luther considered suffering and persecution to be key ingredients of a true church. One of his earlier writings included a definition of the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. 
Some centuries later, in that same part of the world, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that suffering is the badge of true discipleship. He is also very well known for his quote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So there is a clear sense that persecution will come against a follower of Jesus, at least in some way. So how are we expected to respond to this? Well, according to Jesus, it's with rejoicing. In Matthew, the statement from Jesus is to rejoice and be glad when it comes. Rejoice in the original Greek language is a joyful form of salutation. Being glad means to be abundantly jubilant. But in particular, this word appeals to the spiritual makeup of a person. It actually means to be spiritually joyful and glad. Luke's version of this sermon adds an extra word, which means to physically leap for joy. So between the two accounts, we see quite a picture of the sort of response Jesus is calling for here. Essentially, it's this. If we want to remain in a blessed, happy, enviable state, then the appropriate response to persecution is this. Greet it head on with an expectant and joyful composure. Then let your spirit become settled with it. Our joy is not to be gained from the pleasures of the world, but in knowing Jesus. Persecution puts a line in the sand because our pursuit of righteousness causes a separation between us and the world. But we can go to a place where our joy is found in God rather than the world. And we deal with persecution by finding that spiritual sense of gladness. And then we let it come out in our physical response. That's that leap for joy element that Luke speaks of. In other words, don't let it get you down both in your spirit or in your behavior. In scripture, that's how the early church understood it. Starting with the key leaders, the apostles. In Acts, when they were beginning to get some hassles from Jewish leadership, they had to embrace this mindset. On one occasion, they had been arrested and whipped and warned not to preach the name of Jesus. In response, Acts chapter 5 tells us that they left the Jewish council rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Christ. In Revelation chapter 2, we read of the church in a city called Smyrna. The church there was actually poverty-stricken, even though the city was quite prosperous. They had been rejected from work and trade unions because they refused to embrace the pagan gods. They were subject to significant persecution, yet Jesus calls them spiritually rich for their righteous stand. Typical of that church was its legendary bishop, Polycarp, who in 156 AD was arrested and tried on account of his faith. He was sentenced to death by burning, and we are told in history that as he made his way to the execution site, the governor had one last go at trying to get him to renounce his Christian faith. The response of Polycarp is a famous one. For 86 years, I have served Jesus, and he has never done me wrong. How then can I now blaspheme my King and Saviour? Martyrdom and persecution is part of the heritage on which this Christian life we follow today is built on. We must remember that. Now, Jesus gives a couple of reasons we can rejoice in those times. First, as we see in the lives of the apostles and just now with Polycarp, it is evidence of godly authenticity before God and the world. Jesus describes authenticity in persecution like this. In the same way they treated the prophets who were before you. 
All through the ages, there was a consistent mark of persecution against the righteous pursuit of God and the kingdom. So all those persecuted, even in small ways, and even today, find themselves in good company. If you seek peace with God and seek His righteousness, it will come at the expense of the approval of the world around you at times. And your proof of righteousness will be your ability to stand when the hostility of the world comes your way. Men like Polycarp, who were publicly martyred, actually influenced others to repent and step into the void. The great Samaritan apologist Justin Martyr was one such man. He went on to do wonders in explaining the misunderstood elements of the faith to the Roman authorities, before he too was eventually put to death. The other reason for rejoicing is that persecution comes from true identification with Christ. I hear this statement a little too often from people in the church today. Cam, sometimes I am just not confident that I'm actually following Jesus. This usually happens after being dragged down with an issue they haven't defeated yet, and they are feeling a little bit sorry for themselves. We will all be in various states of repair as we go along in Christian life. As I said a few episodes back, there are trace elements of sin within all of us that makes absolute purity this side of eternity a very difficult thing to do. But perhaps a good question to ask to see where our faith is really at could be this. How serious do I take my faith in the public sphere? Do we shrivel away when people start mocking religious things? Do we stand up and identify with Jesus when the world around us seems hostile to him? Do we call for right and godly justice when all those around us are promoting otherwise? When questioned about our belief systems, do we unashamedly point to Jesus? Or do we get as far from the conversation as we possibly can? If you answer those questions positively, I'd suggest your faith is in a better position than you give yourself credit for. Let me remind you of a few things here. At baptism, Jesus identified with the deepest spiritual emptiness and need of humankind. At temptation, Jesus identified with the passions that served to distract us away from the things of God. At the cross, Jesus identified with our sin. He was made to become sin so that true spiritual reconciliation could occur. And then he calls us to identify with him in his ministry, in his character, in his kingdom, and in his suffering. When we face persecution, we are in good company with the prophets and the cloud of witnesses since. But we are also identifying with Jesus in the greatest way. So if we sometimes doubt our faith, but still find ourselves standing despite the challenges against us in the world, then I would say we have great cause to rejoice. As we come to the end of these Beatitudes, we then find that the same promise made at the start to the poor in spirit is made to the persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did Jesus run out of reasons? Or is there a connection? Well, I certainly see one. Self-poverty starts what standing in persecution completes in the development of Christian character. When we empty ourselves, we begin to pursue what Jesus has for us instead. As we fill up with God, our own little kingdoms diminish and our agendas, motives and purposes make way for a greater kingdom and its purposes. With each blessed trait we embrace, our own kingdom drops and Christ's kingdom prevails. When we started with simply emptying ourselves out and became poor in spirit, 
a new kingdom showed up on our horizon and we began to pursue it. For a while, other things remain in our peripheral vision. But with each blessed trait we embrace, the peripheral things get smaller and God's kingdom looms larger. Then the eventual ability to endure persecution will be the proof we need that we've made the God-placed kingdom the sole purpose of our lives. Friend, once we're in that place, only one thing remains in our sights. Only one inheritance matters. Only one sovereign is ruling our lives. And only one destination and way of life is desired, the way of the kingdom of heaven. The Apostle Paul wrote some cool things in 2 Corinthians. Let me summarize it this way. I might be poor, but many become spiritually rich because of me. I have nothing on earth as we currently know it, but still have everything to look forward to. In Philippians, he writes to this effect, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I even disregard it all as garbage because all that matters is gaining Christ. Jesus tells the church in Smyrna just how rich they truly are in his eyes because of their persecution. To his new disciples on a Galilean mountain, Jesus promises this, Great is your reward in heaven when you get to this point in your character. No matter what we face in this life, no matter what loss we encounter, no matter what persecution we face for the name of Jesus and the pursuit of righteousness, all of that will be totally worth it. Well, that brings a significant piece of scripture to an end. We're going to take some time now to pray as we finish this episode. Jesus, I know that this is a pretty tough standard to follow here, but I want to be a believer who will be able to stand even when the world around me is hostile. Please help me to do just that. Help me to keep an authentic faith no matter what challenges come my way. Help me to keep my character strong in the public sphere and help me to be bold when asked about the faith I have. I ask that your spirit will be present with me as I engage with the world around me. I know that the world around me is not always going to respond well to you and your kingdom but I choose now to stand firm anyway. May you guide me through the times when my faith is challenged or persecuted. And I ask you to remind me of the reward that is still to come, despite what I experience now. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.